in our study uh, through this, this gospel. I know it sounds weird that we're starting in chapter 4, but uh, we spent Christmas going through chapters 1 and 2. We're going to skip over chapter 3 because that's mainly John the Baptist uh, and the genealogy of Christ. It's not that those are not important. There's lots that we could learn from both those things. But uh, if we're going to get through this series uh, the way I would like to, then I'm going to have to be very focused and very disciplined. Um, I want to time it so that we can go from Christmas to Easter. Uh, by the same time, we're following then the, um, the story line of Christ where we get from his birth to his death and resurrection uh, at the same sort of time. So uh, the goal is to stay focused very much on Christ, um, who he is, what his priorities are, what his values are and then for us then to take them and to learn from them. I don't want to get bogged down this morning on background and context of the book and things like that there. I love all that stuff, but I understand that not everyone else does, so um, I appreciate that. What I will say, though, as we get into Luke, is a Greek doctor, and he's highly educated, and the two books that he writes in Scripture, the book of Luke, and then the book of Acts, part one and part two, they're considered among the greatest uh, Greek literature ever written, ever written, okay? So all the other kind of classical works, Luke in particular stands as one of the greatest uh, forms of classical writing uh, ever written. In fact, one of the French critics of Christianity, okay? So a complete atheist named Renan uh, said that the gospel of Luke was the most beautiful book he had ever written. So that's, it's, it's a highly um, regarded book in, in particular. It's also very accurate and precise. Um, I think that's what made Luke and Paul such great friends. Uh, they paid attention to the little things. They were similar in personality. They're, they're like-minded. They're, they're both quite pedantic. They are, are precise. They're concerned about the little minute details. They're analytical. It's the story of the doctor and the lawyer. that You can imagine the kind of conversations that they would have. Now, Luke's a doctor, and so he writes as a doctor, and he describes miracles. He uses more medical terminology than other writers. In fact, Luke right, uses more medical terms than Hippocrates, who's the father of modern medicine. In fact, we'll get more medical terminology in the Gospel of Luke than all of Hippocrates' writings put together. Okay? So, so it gives you an idea of how accurate and how precise and how focused Luke is when it comes to recording this Gospel. Luke is very concerned with accuracy. Now, just to give you an overview of the, the Gospels, hopefully, maybe, um, maybe that's a wee bit blurry. The four Gospels are like listening to the four parts of, of a beautiful choir um, singing in harmony. F the four parts of a choir will not sing the same notes, but they will blend together to create a, a more enhanced, richer sound. This is exactly what the Gospels do. You'll look at them and you'll think, well, they're saying sort of maybe four slightly different versions of the same story but they don't contradict one another. They enhance and they enrich. Matthew, for example, um, is a former disciple of Christ. His name is Levi. Um, and even though in all of the Bible we have nothing that, of anything that Matthew said with no quotes, no backstory, apart from the fact that he abandoned his Jewish name, Levi, to become a tax collector, yet Matthew then writes to the people that he turned his back on. He, he writes to the Jews to say, listen, this Jesus, he's, he's the Messiah. And I think that's a really brilliant twist in the whole Gospel of Matthew. He turned his back on his people, and now he's running back to him and says, no, no, listen, 
this is the guy. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And he's very much concerned with telling the Jewish people that the king has come. And so he'll, he'll keep saying, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And then he'll give the Old Testament phrase because he wants to prove to them, look, guys, he's the king. Mark, by contrast, he, he's a preacher um, rather than a teacher. And, and he pulls on Peter's experiences and speaks to a, a Roman audience about the servanthood of Christ and focuses more on the miracles. Um, for all the power that Jesus had, he chose not to be served, but to serve. And speaking to a Roman audience, that would just blown their minds. Hold on. He could have been served, but he chose not to. Remember, the Roman Empire was built on slaves and built on servants. They found this very strange. Mark loves the words immediately. When you're reading, it goes, and then, and then, and then. And by the time you can, <sighs> by the time you get to the end of a chapter, because go, 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 go. Which is why a lot of the time whenever we're introducing the, the Jesus to, to younger readers, we'll use the book of Mark because it's got the stories and, and it's action. And it doesn't get necessarily get bogged down in long uh, dialogue and conversations. The idea is to show Jesus as someone who's always on the move, who is busy, he's serving, he's working, he's working. Here's Jesus, the one who came to serve us. He came to rescue us. Luke, then, is the Greek historian, uh, is speaking to the Greeks as an historian. It's focusing on parables and the teachings and the perfection of Christ. The Greeks had this idea of the perfect man. What would perfect humanity look like? What, what would his face look like? What would his body look like? How would he behave? They were fascinated by this idea of, perf- of the perfect man. And so Luke builds on that. And he's writing to Christians from a Greek background, written with eyewitness accounts and written with accuracy to assure these Christians that the grounding of their faith is accurate, that, that the person who they've put their hope in is the one who can save them, which is why accuracy is so important for Luke. Remember, Luke traveled with Paul from, well, I think really Acts 16 onwards. It goes from he to we. Uh, and we've seen in past studies in Galatians and Second Corinthians how there was these people coming into the churches after Paul had left, trying to make them into uh, cultural Jews. Listen, I know you're a 45-year-old man, but you need to get circumcised. Hmm. Yeah, and you need to do the food laws, and you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to, otherwise you're not really a Christian. Um, so Luke was part of the fight in that. He, he was part of the response team that went with Paul and says, no, it is through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so when he writes his gospel, you've got to believe that that's, got to be a, that's a big influence in why he writes to the Greek Christians. It is through Jesus and Jesus alone. So forget about all these cultures. Forget it. Focus on Christ. Not fitting in. And then John, he's just on a different plane altogether when he writes his gospel. He, he just says, look, this is about God. It's about God incarnate. And his gospel is more distinctive than the other ones. So, so look, that gives you an overview of the idea. But, but as we go into this chapter, let me just put one verse in front of you just to frame up what we're talking about. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. That's what Jesus said about the devil. So as we go into Luke chapter 4, we're going to talk about the temptations of Christ 
I need you to understand that this is who he is. This is who he is. The devil is a liar and a murderer by nature. We always don't often see our enemy very clearly and framed up with accuracy. There he is. Uh, So just as we come to, to look for, you need to just lock that in. The enemy is a liar and a murderer. Okay, Luke chapter 4, 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I think it's important that you recognize the timing of this. It was just after he was baptized. A miracle happened in the baptism. The heavens opened and the the Spirit of the Lord came down as a dove. Jesus, in, humanly speaking, is in really good place. He is full of the Spirit. He's being led by the Spirit. And, and if you have been a Christian for any length of time, you will know what this feels like. These are, there are moments in your life where you feel God speaking to you so clearly, you feel His hand on your life so well, and you go, yes, this is brilliant because I'm so certain about what I'm supposed to do. I'm so sure about how I'm supposed to deal with this. This is absolutely fantastic. Being full of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. But I need you to see that it is on that spiritual high that goes straight into a time of temptation. Never think that you can be so filled with the Holy Spirit that you are immune from Satan trying to trip you up. In fact, what I would say is that um, whenever we get more confident in what God is doing in our lives, the clearer our vision, the more passionate and fuller our hearts are for what God wants us to do, the more likely we are to expect uh, or to see Satan trying to trip us up. Is there something to be learned in that? Well, yeah. Every time God gives you a blessing, the enemy will try to steal it from you. John 8, he is a murderer and a liar by nature. Just be aware of that. You don't need to be frightened of that. You don't need to be scared of that. You just need to be aware that that's how he works. Uh, the Bible tells us we're not ignorant of his devices. Don't be ignorant of how our enemy tries to work. How many times have you really felt blessed and, and encouraged leaving church and then some idiot near runs you off the road or pulls out in front of you and all of a sudden your joy is tested? You know, and, uh, or you're, you maybe head back home for, for dinner or you're heading out to a restaurant and then the kids wreck something and your joy is tested again. Are you still singing, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul? Well, you may be singing a different tune. <laughs> I've lost count of the times where I've, I've came out of church and I've been buzzing and I've been going, yes, Lord, thank you. I, 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 I'm excited about the conversations that I've had afterwards. It's been encouraging. It's been wonderful. And then something happens straight away and bam, goes, oh, steals my joy. Now, maybe I'm too quick to let go of it. Maybe that, there's definitely some, some part of that. But I, I've seen it from right from whenever I was a teenager, whether it's com- coming home from camps or, or, or youth weekends or whatever it happens to be. I, I've seen it happen time and time again. There's always an idiot on the roads. There's always someone who does something that frustrates or, or just makes you focus on, on the wrong thing. Or I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> Temptation is there all week to do that again. 
so often Satan comes to try and steal and to destroy what God has given. So the Spirit leads Christ to fast for almost six weeks. We've got 40 days there. And so here's the question. If fasting draws us near to God, and it does, it reveals sin. It reveals what's really on our hearts. If you've ever got hangry, you know, that sort of anger because you're so hungry, right? Well, that, that's even just a re- revelation of, okay, I may be finding comfort in food rather than in God. I'm finding comfort in, in the fridge rather than in the Father. And so we have that kind of revelation of, okay, here's what's really in my heart whenever I don't comfort eat. And so if it brings us to a place where we're more dependent on God, where sin is revealed, and we find a time of worship and intimacy with God, which it does, why would Satan come and attack Jesus at this point? Why now? Why at this time? Well, perhaps after the baptism, Satan knows for sure that this is the Messiah. Satan isn't all-knowing. So maybe he, he, he thought, okay, this could well be the Messiah, and so he targets him. He wants to get him before his ministry begins, make him sin, then this man cannot be a perfect man, and the perfect man can't stand as, as a representative of man before God. So uh, if he sins at this point, even before he gets off the ground, Satan wins. He can't take away anyone's sin if he's sinful himself. And I'm convinced that this is why Satan attacks us when he does. He sees that oh, church, they're building up momentum. Let's trip them up before they get too far. Or look, there, there's someone there who, who uh, is building up speed and they're making momentum. And right, well, it's always more painful when you trip them up whenever they're on at full speed. Huh? That'll really hurt them because he hates us. And I think the other reason is that Satan attacks Jesus at this point because Jesus is at his weakest, humanly speaking. Now, by what I'm told, because I can't tell you too much about fasting by experience, as you can tell, I can only really tell you what I've read. And that when you fast, it's hard. And then it gets harder. Then, after a while, it gets even harder. But there comes a point then when it starts to feel a wee bit easier. And the idea behind the fasting then is that wrestle for priorities. Does the flesh control us or do we control the flesh? That's the idea. It says, I'm going to set this time aside for God. Nothing's going to disrupt that time. But eventually it does get easier, and then the flesh falls into submission. Now, the most I've ever fasted is maybe 24 to 30 hours. That, that's been my limit. I get to the point where it starts to get a wee bit easier, and then I celebrate it getting easier by having a bacon sandwich. Okay? Tends to be how it goes. I said, goes, no, 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 it's okay. I, 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 got, I got through the hard bit. Time to celebrate. And, and that tends to be how it works for me. Um, so as I say, I can't really speak too much from experience. 24, 30 hours has been my max. Um, but when you do a prolonged fast for days and days, the pain does go away. But when you persevere in that, the hunger will come back, and it will come back in a devastatingly painful way. And that is not about, oh, the flesh is trying to make you weak. No, it's because you are weak, and the body is crying out that it, we're at the point of ill health. 
you're at the point where you're reaching starvation. You need to eat something. And that's where we come to when we meet Christ here at the end of his time of, of fasting. He was hungry now after 40 days. He's on the verge of being so physically deprived that he is starving to death. And it's at this moment that Satan says, how about some bread? What about we sandwich? Would you like something to eat, Jesus? Would you like something to eat? Because he's at his weakest humanly speaking. Verse 3, because the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him saying, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So let me put this in the, the Kennedy International Version. Saying, uh, Jesus, since we both know you can, why don't you? It's not a sin to eat. So eat. Now, it's interesting. Satan doesn't try to tempt Jesus with adultery. He doesn't try to tempt Jesus with fornication or stealing or lying or murder. Those are too obvious. Those are the games that won't work. Jesus isn't a, a fall guy for something like that. When Satan means business with a strong saint, he sticks with religion. He, he makes the Bible his textbook and he plays subtle games. See if this doesn't sound familiar to you. If you're a child of God, why are you living like a pauper and not a prince? If you're a child of God, you don't eat casseroles, you eat steak. If you're a child of the king, you don't drive second-hand cars, you deserve a new car. If you're a child of God, you, you, shop at, you shop at Victoria Square. You don't shop on Primark. The children of the king don't throw their lives away in tribal mission fields, living on shoestring budgets, building up no reserves. If you're a child of God, you claim your blessings. You live like the prince that you are. You live like the princess you are. You deserve health. You deserve a comfortable lifestyle. You deserve... Hey, God has promised... He'll send his angels to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Jesus, you have the power to do it. So why not? Why is this a temptation? Because it's really a question over God's provision. Jesus, since you are the promised one, look, we both know who you are. You, you're the son of God. Look, since that's true, why isn't God providing you with food over here? How is it that you find yourself so weak? Why is it you find yourself almost ill when all you've been trying to do is serve the Father? Why is it that you don't find yourself strong? Why is it that you find yourself alone? Why is it that you find yourself isolated here? Because eating is a sign of fellowship and you often would eat together in Jewish culture. Why would he let his own son starve? Why don't you just take matters into your own hand? Get yourself something to eat, son. Jesus is on the point of starvation. Satan comes when he is most vulnerable. We find the same temptation in the Garden of Eden, right? There's the tree. There's lots of trees, but there's one tree in particular, and Satan comes along and says, well, why, why not this tree? You eat off all other trees. Why, why not this one? 
And Eve says, look, we can eat off any of the trees of the garden. Just this is the only one we can. That's what God said. Satan turns around and says, has God said? Is that right? Are you sure? That doesn't sound like a thing that God would do. That doesn't seem like a thing that a loving God would deny from his children. Why would God keep something good from you? What kind of God do you really serve? What about Abraham and Sarah? God promised them a son. It seemed like years and years and years before, and they're not getting any younger. They weren't young to begin with. They're not, and Sarah says, look, this isn't going to happen. Take Hagar, take my servant girl. Let's help God out a little. God's not going to come through for us. We have to take matters into our own hands. And it's questioning God's ability to provide. It's a refusal to trust his timing. Because what that happens is then, it leads us to the thought that says, well, if I'm not sure God's really going to come through for me, I might as well sort myself out. If I can't trust that God's going to give me what I need when I need it, I need to do that. Besides, hey, we can probably look after ourselves better than most anyway, right? I mean, if we have money, who needs faith? If you can pay for the bills and pay for the car and pay for the holidays, who needs faith when you've got the money there? Who needs faith when you can provide? We can take the lead in our own lives. We can take the lead in our own stories. God isn't doing it for us, so we might as well do it for ourselves. So Jesus, use your own resources. Go on ahead. It's not that it's sinful to eat bread because it's not. Right? Whatever some of the health people say, it's not a sin to eat bread. But what it is sinful to do is to question God's provision, which is why verse 4 says, Jesus answers saying, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8. Now just tuck that back in your brain, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, there's always a temptation when we are weak to take matters in our own hands. There's always a temptation whenever things aren't going the way we think they should be to say, right, well, this isn't working out. I need to take over operation control here. Instead of waiting for God's timing, so often we are impatient. The second temptation. It's not so much about the promises as it is, or the provision of God as it is the promises of God. The devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Matthew and Luke kind of swap these temptations around, the second and third temptations. They swap the order around. It's no big deal. I'm just pointing that out. But um, it isn't so much about this provision as promises. He whisks God away, uh, Jesus away to the mountain. Well, the hill of temptation isn't really that big a mountain. Don't be thinking like they're on top of Everest or anything like that there. Uh, the Mount of Temptation is about 1,100 feet, which to kind of give you a frame of reference is 360 meters. Donard is over twice that. 
Um, in fact, Slemish is higher than that. Okay, so this is really just kind of a kind of a hill, a slight incline, really. But Satan's trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out here. Listen, if you're doing all this for the sake of the nations, I'll give you them right now. You're doing this for a crown. I'll make you king of the world right now. You won't have to die. You won't have to suffer. You don't have to spend more time than you need to with these insects, these people around you that you claim to love. We can do this right now. We can sort all this out right now. All you have to do is bow the knee. Bow the knee. Just once. Just once. I'll give you everything that you've came for. I'll step away. I'll let you have it. Remember why Jesus came. Jesus came to die because he needed to defeat the hold of Satan over us. But here Satan says, look, I'll give it all up freely. You'll not have to pay that price. Here's the price. You buy the knee. Let's renegotiate the terms. And Jesus reminds Satan that, look, this isn't going to work. Only God is worthy of worshiping. And he quotes Deuteronomy again. Not Deuteronomy 8, but this time Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. See, Satan would love for the Christian to take the easy way out every time. He promises us an easy path if we just make little compromises along the way. Just a little compromise. Just listen, you don't have to become like a Satan worshiper. Just, just kind of a wee, nod the, not a wee bow. Every now and again, life will be easy. It'll be so much easier. And we'll just allow us to have a comfortable life. We'll, we'll tread water. We'll get through. Maybe he'll promise a wee bit of fame. Maybe he'll give us a little bit of, uh, of financial uh, wealth. We just compromise a little bit. If we don't take the Bibles just so seriously, if we don't treasure God as much as he would like us to, there'll be no fights, no pain, no cross, just... Just indulge a little bit of the world. It's what Satan really just wants. If he can get Christ to bow the knee, because that's what he wanted. That was why he got kicked out of heaven. He wanted to to be like God, to have the worship of of all creation bowing to him. If he can get God himself, Christ, the the, the Son, to, to bow, that's all he's ever wanted. That's all he's ever been working towards. Give me that one time, Jesus. Give me that sensation just this once, and I'll stand back. Everything will be yours. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do it. You can have immediate gratification. Christian, have you ever had the thought, well, look, I'm tired, so it'll be okay this one time. Don't worry, I I reckon I've earned this. I've worked hard this, so I I I can balance it out with this. Listen, Christian, nobody will blame you this one time if you... It's just one time. It's just one little bow of the knee. One time. 
And Jesus says, no, this isn't happening. This isn't going to happen for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. He's quoting that passage from Deuteronomy 6, and it's when Moses is speaking to the people. This is what Moses says. He says, when you get to the land the Lord has given you, don't think that you're here because you're such a good group of people. You don't forget the Lord your God, but you will bless the Lord and depend on the Lord and thank the Lord. It's a warning chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Don't forget everything that you have is from him. The book of James would say every good and perfect gift comes from him. Don't forget what God has done. Don't forget it. Satan can promise you loads of things. But it comes from God. Satan can make you all the promises in the world. Like a dodgy car salesman, you know, they'll promise you everything. They can't back up those promises. Only God has the authority to give good gifts. Satan's aim in this church today is to hinder you from following Jesus because Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. The Christian life involves a wee bit of suffering. It involves hard choices. And so often Satan will say, I can make it easier. I can make it easier you bow the knee. Sometimes people will say, look, if Satan is so real, why don't we see like demon possessions and all sorts of things in the West? The reason I believe is that Satan holds the church so tightly in a vice-like grip of comfort. He doesn't need to. Why show his hand? Why scare people? Why, why reveal that he's working at all? what Satan fears most in the church is a dependence on God. Uh, And Paul would go on to say, I count everything as loss. Uh, To be honest, he uses quite a graphic word. Um, The nice translation is poo. Everything's just poo compared to Christ. That I might know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Becoming like him in his death. It's the path Christ took for us. Now, the third temptation is not uh, so much about provision or promises, but I believe it's about God's protection. Verse 9 He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, Listen, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The devil throws out a couple of verses of his own. You know, devil knows the Bible better than we do. He studied at the best theological college ever, heaven. He's had a long history of humanity. He knows how to work this. And if you notice that he, he, he quotes two parts of a verse, which is why verse 11 starts with and. So it's like, here's the first bit, and here's the second bit. It's not the full quote. Because what the original text says is, he will guard you 
in all your ways. But he leaves that wee bit out. It's very clever how Satan can do that. The devil is using scripture to build up a case. Step out in faith. Don't you take the Bible seriously? Trust God. Do it. Take a risk. If you trust God, that is. Don't, don't you trust God? Don't you take the Bible seriously? It's not a risk if you believe God's promised it. Now, of course, Jesus does take the Bible seriously. But that doesn't mean he's going to do stuff out of context. Just because someone's got a verse doesn't mean he jumps. And it bugs me because you see it all the time, and you especially see it on Facebook and social media and all, where people just take these random verses and they take it to mean something completely different to what it means. It goes, oh, I got this verse. I don't think you did. But Luke 11 will say, ask and it will be given. Mm-hmm. Of course, the context of that is, if you ask for salvation, it will be given. If you ask for help in the kingdom service, it will be given. In Philippians 4:13, that we read, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I mean, amen, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but that doesn't mean that I can, uh, it means that he's writing that from prison and I can go through these trials and I can endure. I can do that through Christ who gives me strength. It doesn't mean, hey, I can lose three pounds this month. It doesn't mean, hey, I can run a marathon through Christ who gives me strength. It doesn't mean that. And don't even get me started then on how all things work together for good. Satan's trying to get Jesus to step outside the will of God, to work a miracle, to prove who he claimed to be. He's trying to get Jesus to accept fame, a wee bit of publicity. Because if he stopped off the temple like that, a 400 feet gap down, he'd have been famous. There have been a lot of people there, a lot of people watching it, a lot of people seeing the, the, the prophecy in Malachi 3 coming true. Well, that would have been good. This unknown guy announcing himself, everyone knowing, everyone being without any doubt that this is who Jesus said he is. But Jesus responds the proper way. His faith was, his response is one of faith. He uses scripture to counter scripture and says, you don't test God. It's Deuteronomy again, chapter six. I don't need to prove God by putting on a show. God honors obedience, not outcomes. And ministries and churches have collapsed because Satan got someone to test God rather than obey God. To put on a show and to please others. To get their eyes on what other people might think of them rather than humbly, faithfully just doing what God has called them to do. Or they put a weight on, their ver- on a verse that's out of context. It's so dangerous. Let me throw you this one before we judge people uh, um, instead of sympathizing with them. It's my belief that we test God all the time, okay? So you ever go, you ever speeding down the road and then you see a camera or you see a police car and you go, Lord, I pray that uh, I'll not get done for speeding. Don't test him. Or, or, or um, <coughs> we, we maybe have a history with alcoholism and we walk into a bar say, Lord, Help me not be tempted. Don't test them. I spend a lot of time alone with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Lord, help me with my lust. Don't walk into times of temptation and then say, oh, Lord, deliver me from evil. Don't deliberately test yourself. 
there's two ways that we can do this. Number one is very simple and straightforward. You run away from temptation. You flee temptation. There's times where we put ourselves into situations that we have no business being anywhere near them. We should not be anywhere near them, so we get out of there. Second Timothy's brilliant with that. Just run away from it. Get away from it. Stay away from it. Don't be stupid in how we conduct ourselves. We said this last Sunday morning. How we live matters. We've seen it in our town in the last 10 days. And it can happen when even a pastor thinks, well, hey, I'm spiritual, I'm strong, I can control my temptation, I'm controlling it, it's not controlling me, I'll not run away from temptation. And not only did he get caught, but he fell and he allowed Satan to steal and to destroy and it's left a mess. We must learn to run from temptation. And the other time, there will be times whenever temptation comes and we can't just run away. If it comes in school, you can't just go running out of the classroom. Bah! It doesn't work. Right? You, can't, you can't always run. Or if something happens and it's maybe about lying on paperwork and all, well, if you have to do your paperwork, you're always going to have to do paperwork. You can't run away from paperwork. Ah! No, so you have to resist the temptation. Even if everyone else is doing it, even if no one else would know. How do we do that? How do we resist? Number one, we stand our ground. The Bible says in James 4, submit yourselves to God. Commit yourselves to him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a military term, like the resistance Stand immovable. I'm not going anywhere, Satan. I'm standing right here. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not backing down from doing what I know that God has called me to do. I need to be here and I will stay here in the strength that he provides. I'm not backing down. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here. And the other way is to study your Bible. Study your ground and study your Bible These two things will help you in times of temptation. Face it head on, knowing what the Bible says. I I really feel sorry for Christians that are so biblically illiterate that in times of temptation, they've got no reference point. They don't know of any passages to turn to. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't know how to biblically think about what's in front of them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 22? He says, you do err not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. We need to know the word of God. We also need to seek him. That's what James said, remember? Seek him and resist the devil. That's how we know the Bible and the power of God. You'll never know that, the power of God, until we know the scriptures. They go hand in hand, so stand your ground. Study your Bible. And it amazes me every time I look at this. Jesus beats Satan using the book of Deuteronomy. How's your knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy? Yeah, mine's the same. And yet we find that it was sufficient to resist Satan. So resist him. Resist the devil. Trust in God. Trust in his provision. 
trust in his promise, trust in his protection. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we never really like hearing about temptations because Satan knows that he can tempt us with things that we like. That's why they're tempting. Uh, and we know that so often we find ourselves going back to things that deep down we, we enjoy. We enjoy the gossip or we enjoy uh, that, that lust or we enjoy the, the, the greed or the selfishness. We enjoy it, Lord. That's why we keep going back and that's why Satan keeps bringing it in front of us. Lord, I pray that even this morning you'd help us to see you um, as more precious. Lord, that the things of earth would, would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace and your presence and your love and your glory and your beauty, Lord, that it would be you who we see and, and that we are so in awe of you. All these other things just don't have any, any appeal. Lord, may we treasure our, our husbands more. May we treasure our wives more that our eyes would be less prone to wandering. Lord, may, may we be so committed and so devoted that it keeps us faithful because our heart longs to be where they are. And Lord, in many other areas, in many other ways where we can stumble and we can fall and we can be tempted, Lord, help us to run away. Help us to resist. And so Lord, ground us in your word. Ground us in the things that we know are true because we know our enemy is a liar from the very beginning. Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.